want to encourage you, uh, grab your Bible. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, if you have a Bible that is provided by us, page 400. It's after the first and second Chronicles, first and second Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah. Grab that. And I also want to encourage you, if you are a note taker, um, write down, take some uh, quick notes this morning as it uh, hopefully will encourage you throughout the week. Um, the one thing that I have discovered about my own uh, personal walk with Christ um, is I, I remember in 1989. Um, when all the bells and whistles came on for me, where I recognized for the first time the grace that has been given to me, when I, I firmly received uh, the gift of salvation that has been, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian home, I went to a Christian school my entire life, I went to a Christian college, uh, and all of a sudden, it all came on. It was like technicolor, where it's like, oh, I understand the gospel. I understand this gift that's been given to me. And it was just electrifying at that moment. And then I remember the excitement that I, it was my first year working at Camp Manitoba and just the, the power and the passion that I had in ministry. I just got to share with all these kids. But I remember the first time that I went back to my home church. And I had to meet with the elders of the church. And I remember um, what a discouraging time that was. And hearing from the, these godly men that, oh, Paul, we're, we're excited for your faith right now, but just want to let you know, this will fade. Really? And going back into even a Christian school setting where it's like, oh, you're, you're kind of this, this was back in the day of Toby Mac when he was really cool with uh, the Jesus Freak stuff. Um, um, what will people say when they discover that you're this Jesus freak? And I was just on fire. And even in the Christian school setting, people are going, whoa, whoa. you know, you got to kind of tone it down. And then you get into the work, the different workplaces that I was involved in, and people are just going, wow, you know, you, you can't say that, you can't express that, you can't be this. And I just remember, even in, as I grew older, your love, as your love for Christ increases, so does opposition. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 4 where we are going to see that there's definitely opposition in our Christian life. So follow along with me as we read from chapter 4. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it them for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones of, out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Amorite was beside him and he said, yes, they will build him. Build, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break, it, break down their stone wall. Oh, hear, hear, oh our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Do not let their sins be blotted out from your sight for they, are provo they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. 
and all the wall was joined together to half its heights, for the people had mind to work. But when Sambal and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Amorites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By, our sol- by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came in all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open spaces, I stationed the people with their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When the enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Igor Sigorsky. Anybody heard of him? He was a a young man at the age of 12 who was convinced that it was going to be possible for humans to fly. And his parents said, you are absolutely ridiculous. There is absolutely no way that humans will ever be able to fly, that they will ever be flying through the air like a bird. And this little boy at the age of 12 was absolutely convinced that it was possible. Well, Igor Sigorsky went on to build the first helicopter. In his American plant, he posted this sign. According to the recognized aeronautical test, the bumblebee cannot fly because of the shape, the weight of his body in relation to the total wing area. The bumblebee does not know this, so he goes ahead and flies anyway. Nehemiah would have loved this sign saying, are you serious? 
you say that everything is against you, but yet I believe that our God is, a, is capable to make this thing possible. It happens in nature. It happens in our spiritual life. If God is for us, who can be against us? There's nothing that is impossible for those who are in Christ. His story, the story of Nehemiah, shows that whenever you are going to accomplish anything great for God, that there is always going to be opposition. There is always going to be some kind of opposition. And Satan never, ever seems to bother those of us who are half-hearted and who are contented with the, just the ho-hum of our spiritual existence. Satan is completely satisfied with you being half-hearted. In fact, that's exactly where he wants you to be. Satisfied. I just love where I'm at. I, I just love kind of this nice little uh, south suburban kind of way of life that we have. Just be satisfied. You love Jesus. He loves you. You know the songs. You, you show up for church. Way to go. In fact, you might even give your, a tithe. Be satisfied with that. But the second that it seems like we engage in the mission of God and that our hearts just burn for the things of God, we start doing like Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem, start building, rebuilding the wall and restoring what God desires, restoring people to God and God to his people and just giving us a heart for those things. That is when Satan goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I must oppose this. In fact, Satan, his name itself means adversary. Satan is our adversary. It's true on a personal level. If you have one foot in the world and one foot for the things of God, there's not much opposition. But the second that you are just desiring with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength to follow after the things of God, opposition comes. The same is true with the church. I'm going to tell you the second that the the second that Missio Dei decides, to, you know what, we are going to be in mission for God. We are going to be this pure and radiant bride for Christ. We are going to get into the Word. We're going to devour the Word. We're going to meditate on His Word. We're going to be a people of prayer. We're going to be in mission, in the community, sharing the good news. The second that we do that, opposition will come from within and from without. It is going to happen. So we need to be ready as individuals, as married couples, as a church, as church leaders. We need to be ready for opposition and know how to respond to it. And this morning, we are going to see that Nehemiah teaches us just that. When the enemy opposes us, as he surely will, when the enemy opposes us, we should respond with prayer, work, vigilance, and focus on the Lord. We've got to understand first that opposition will come. When we engage, we've got to be convinced that when we are engaging in God's mission, that when we are totally devoted with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, everything that we are, when we are engaged in mission, opposition will come. And we've got to be convinced of that. If you feel no opposition whatsoever in your life, we've got to start asking the question, What's going on? Why is there not opposition? But we've got to agree that opposition will come. And then when we get engaged, we, we need to know how to respond. 
If we only had chapter 3 of Nehemiah, as we read last week, we would get the idea, the impression that the, the wall went off without any hitches. This guy built this, this guy built this, this guy and his daughter built this, and they did this, and they built this, and you're just going, man, this is just electrifying stuff. And if we buy into that, we're missing out on the reality of our Christian life. Because if you look at chapters 4 through 6, it shows that problems are going to be coming. And you're going to just see, if you do a quick read, not, not now, but if you read later on this week, read through chapters 4 through 6, and you're going to see that there is an absolute cycle that is going on. Chapter 3, there seems to be an advance. They're building the wall. They're working together in unity. Chapter 4, 1 through 3, that there's a setback. Chapter 4, 4 through 6, that there's a, an advance. Verses 7 and 8, there's a setback. Verse 9, there's an advance. Verse 10 11, there's a setback. And it keeps on going back and back and forth, back and forth. The Christian life is filled with conflict. And if we know how to respond in, in the midst of the heat of the battle to this conflict, it will drive us to a greater dependence on God a greater dependence on Him, and a greater determination to do the things that He has called us to do. So first thing, here's our, our first major, major point that I want us to know. If you know Jesus Christ and attempt to accomplish anything for Him, the enemy will oppose us. Well, we need to understand what is the enemy's tactics? How does, how does Satan come up against us? And in here, there is a plethora of different ways that the, that the devil, Satan, uses to oppose Nehemiah and those who are building the wall. You're going to see first, the first kind of, of opposition is an anger of others against you. Sanballat, when he heard that that they were building and they were becoming successful. He, if you look at Scripture, it says that when he heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. He was ticked off. He was angry that such a thing. In fact, it says that he was, if you look at kind of the original Hebrew, it says that he was burning mad. He wasn't just angry. There was this deep rage. When Satan opposes us, you may see it in the relationships that you have. That there's this, this, this anger. Because what was going on is that Sambalit had a secure financial secure security going on with the trade routes. He controlled the trade routes of that day. And what was going on, Jerusalem was being built up and it threatened his way of life. His security was being threatened and it enraged him. The new work of Jerusalem threatened his lifestyle, and so they got angry. Satan uses the angers of others to squelch our newfound joy and zeal. Satan's aim is to, to get the new Christian to cool his or her commitment to the Lord. And if anger doesn't work, Satan hauls out a whole other tool. And this is one that is really seen in American culture. Mockery and sarcasm. You see what happened here in verse uh, 4, verse 2? What, what does he do? And in the presence of his brother, Sambalit's uh, brothers, 
along with the army, what does he do? What are these feeble Jews doing? You hear the language? What are these dumb Jews doing? These weaklings? What are they trying to do? Are they, they, are they really trying to build a wall? Are they really trying to do something that will change the landscape of Jerusalem? Are you serious? What, what, what's going on? Do you think that that's possible? And then you go on and read a little bit farther. Tobiah the Amorite was beside him. He said, yes, they're building it. But let me tell you, even if one of those little skinny red foxes jump up on the wall, it's going to fall down. Seriously? There's no way that they can do it. Have you seen the construction? Mockery and sarcasm. Mockery and sarcasm. And they're just poisonous things. And Satan uses ridicule to absolutely defeat our purposes. Our sense of purpose is just, they're making fun. They're, They're mocking us and their sarcastic tone. Really? And they're, they're just waiting. They're waiting for you to fall into some kind of sin so that they can hoot and holler about it and say, see, what did I tell you? You know what? They really aren't that strong. There's really nothing different about him. Did you see that Christian leader? He or she did that. They fell. You know what? I, I knew that this, this whole God thing, this real on fire for Jesus thing, it's just, it's, it's a farce. So mockery and sarcasm. But if that doesn't work, they keep on going deeper in, in types of, of opposition. You look at verses uh, 4, 8, and 4, 11, and you're going to see what, what do they start doing? They start throwing out threats. And I'll tell you, working, I worked in this public school as a fifth grade teacher, and I was deeply convinced that as a Christian who believed that my responsibility is to share the good news of Jesus Christ, there were Definitely threats and intimidation. Paul, you start sharing about your personal beliefs in the classroom, you're going to get canned, man. You, that, there's no place in, for that in the classroom. And I'm not sure that the NEA or the IEA, the teachers union, will, will back you up on this one. You, I heard it from the administration, both from, as principals and as superintendent. Reminding me, Paul, there, there is no place. And if there's any, if we have any complaints, this is a public school. And what, what does that do? What, what about, okay, take it out of my situation. What about your place? Is there a genuine fear that in, in your workplace there is absolutely no place for the sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ? And the fear and intimidation that you share it, you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose your livelihood. Man, I don't dare take those kind of steps. So Satan still uses today those subtle threats and intimidation to oppose Christians. You don't ever dare expose your boss's corruption because you'll get fired. Or if you discipline your children as Scripture directs, you might lose your kids. You write a paper in defense of your Christian faith. And you're going to fail the class. There's even a story about a, a church in Arizona where um, a powerful attorney was an elder. And he was caught in an adulterous relationship. And the board, the elder board came to him and said, we're going to have to ask you to resign. And he threatened that if you ever ask me to resign, 
I will catch you up in so much paperwork and so many court costs that it will cause this church to go bankrupt. The only way that I will resign is if this whole elder board resigns. What happened? They caved. The church closed. The whole elder board resigned. Satan uses threats and intimidation to thwart the work of God. And we've got to be mindful that that is his goal, to oppose God's good work, to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Another one, and this is true that I see all the time for us, is just plain old discouragement and exhaustion. You look in verse 10, and what's happened? There was kind of a song. Some scholars believe that a song was kind of going around. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. They were kind of singing this song as they were hauling stones, and they were getting exhausted to the point where they just totally depleted of energy and hope. As a ch- young church plan, you know, we've been around since 2007. And some of you are what? Tired. Exhausted. And even if we've been a church that has been going for 10, 15, 100 years, there are some people in ministry who work hard at the things of God and they just get tired and exhausted. And so what is it that we do? How do, how do we handle this? They lost their hope for the work of God. And therefore, the work of the wall slowly came to a screeching halt. Satan knows that the halfway point of any project is the perfect time to attack. It's a time to start whispering in the ear like, there's no way, you're, you're just tired. You've got too much going on in your life. You've got your family stuff, you've got your work stuff. Really, you really want to do this thing too? It started off really good and you had a lot of hope and joy for this kind of thing. But, you're, you know, it's all right. Take a break from it. There's other people in the church who can handle it. You know, you deserve a break today. Has kind of crept into our mentality. It's all right. Somebody else will pick up and run with it. The same is true with our our personal devotional life, isn't it? Some of us start off strong and we work hard at it. We're reading it. Some of us might even get up even super early and really read scripture and, you know, highlight and, oh, wow, this is great stuff. And then about a month or two later, it's like, you know, I don't know. It it was just a late night and I just couldn't get up. And the pattern starts of just, you know what, I, I can't do it. Exhaustion. Just being exhausted. The newness wears off. The excitement for the project. And God says, no, no, no. It's not done until it's done. Like we talked last week, the work of the church is a never-ending job until Jesus comes back. Matthew 28. Therefore go into all the world and keep on going. Because people are being born every day. Keep on going and keep on going. Next, negativism. You see this back in two and th- verses 2 and 3. Just, just this negative attitude. 
And uh, the people just going, oh. well, uh, they, they keep on coming back. This he came back ten times is this Jewish idiom of saying over and over and over and over, constantly coming back and constantly coming back. And it's just, I, I don't think that we're going to be able to do it. And you even hear it in their words, you know, they're going to, they will come up against us from every place, everywhere that we're going to turn, they're going to, they're going to come back at us. And you even heard it when the children of Israel came into the promised land, or were waiting on the outskirts looking and going, oh no, are you serious? There's giants in there, and they are just going to squash us. There's no way we weak people can be able to handle. It is the land of milk and honey that has been promised to us, but you know, I, I don't think negatively, I, I just don't think that we can ever do this. We just can't accomplish this. And there is a proper place for realism, to be realistic, and to do things in bite-sized hunks. But we can't allow the doom and the gloom and the, to ever take over. Fear is the next piece. That, that we see going on. Fear is the culminative, cumulative effect of all the above factors. The people have seen the, the enemy's anger. They heard mockery and threats. They were being worn down by the work that they were called to do. They heard the repeated gloom and doom from their fellow Jews who lived near the enemy. And Nehemiah saw their fear and exhorted them do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Verse 14, it's great. And I looked and I rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people. So I spoke to the, the elders. Listen, the leaders of the people and the rest of them. And what did he say? In verse 14, it says, do not be afraid of them. Remember what? Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. And I'm sure that there's probably a lot more in here. He could have gone back and said, okay, let me tell you a story about Moses. Do you remember all the things that they went through? All the plagues? Do you remember all that? And what happened? There was a final one. Remember? Yeah, we celebrate Passover. And what happened? We left Egypt. Remember the Lord. And remember what happened when they got to the edge of the Red Sea? And they saw the opposition coming? And you, you guys start mumbling and complaining and say, oh, we should just stay back there because now we're going to be killed. We should, it's so much better over there. And you remember what happened? Moses took his rod and the Red Sea opened up before you. And do you remember? Oh, a great wind came. You remember the story? The great wind came and dried up the land before you. And we walked through on dry land. Dry land. And do you remember what happened? We got to the other side. You remember what God did? As soon as the last person got up, we all turned around and we saw them coming. And what happened? God closed the water over them. Remember the Lord. Remember the song that was sung? Remember the Lord. Remember how God provided for you as you wandered throughout the desert? He provided you food, manna, quail. Remember the Lord. Do you remember how? 
your shoes never wore out? Remember the Lord. Remember how we crossed into the, over the Jordan again? The waters parted. We marched around Jericho and we did not even raise a sword, a shield, a spear. All we did was marched around. And we let out a cry. And what happened? Tell me. Yeah, the whole wall fell down. Remember the Lord. And for us, do we have stories of our own faith that we, I say, Katie, you're, you're discouraged. Remember the Lord. Remember what happened when? Oh, yes. I'm going to cling on to that. Justin, you remember when this would? Yeah, remember the Lord. You're discouraged. You've got fear. You're exhausted. Yeah. Let me, let me tell you again the stories of God working in your life. Remember the Lord. Remember His work. He exhorted them. Remember Him. He's the giver of all good gifts. In God's timing, He gives you the gifts that you need. Are we a people that tell the stories of God's rich abundance in our lives? He gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Is that really just a song that we sing? And just really feel good? And Maybe we'll even raise our hands if we're a little bit more charismatic. Or is it a song that we deeply believe that when Job, Job? Was it Job? When Job said those words after losing his entire family, his entire, uh, all his wealth, he was walking, he had boils all over and all of his best friends were telling him, you know, oh, you know what, you should, you should go back to God. Apparently you sinned or God's angry with you or something. And what do you say? You know, he gives and he takes away. Blessed be the Lord. Remember the Lord. But how did they respond? How did he exhort and challenge them to respond? We need to respond to the enemy's opposition with prayer, work, vigilance, and focus. What do we see them doing? We see in verses 4 and 9 that our first response should always be prayer. John Bunyan wisely observed, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Let me say it again. You can do more than pray after you've prayed. Does that make sense? But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. A man, a woman, a church that is entrenched in prayer. Before we move forward in mission, trust that God is going to bless that movement because we're, we're tuned into what the Spirit is, is saying and directing us. We're in Scripture knowing what God is, has already been doing. But we can't do anything until we pray. That's why we encourage you. Second Tuesday is coming up. Every second Tuesday, we encourage you to come together for just an hour. Find child care for an hour and then make the rest of the night a date night. Come together and pray. Hear from God. 
plead before God, God, would you move in our church? Would you move in our communities? Would you move in our families? Would you move in my neighborhood? God, would you just move in a way, God, we want to glorify you. We want to make your name great and much. And people, just to see how good and pleasant you are, you are the best thing out there. And we wonder why God doesn't move. Maybe it's because we're not coming to him first. But what about Nehemiah's prayer in verses 4 and 5? It doesn't seem to fit really well. Because you get the whole Matthew 5, you know, love your neighbors or love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And if you look at verses 4 and 5, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. <laughs> okay, that, that does not sound like really pray for your enemies and those who persecute you. This is like one of those, bring it God. Bring destruction. So here's, I'm going to just be brief. First, this is not a prayer for personal vengeance, but rather a prayer that God would act to judge sinners. Asking for God's righteous judgment. God, you are a God who desires justice. And you desire that your ways are prosperous. So God, we ask that you, you, you do what is just and do what is right. And second, that these enemies were hindering God's work. It was a prayer that God would judge those who oppose his kingdom and his glory. We can still pray for their salvation, absolutely. But God, we, we pray that ultimately your will be done in this situation. And God, that you move powerfully. And if that means that this person would be taken out of office or this person would be moved and their heart would be changed, God, do whatever it is that, that changes those who oppose you and oppose your glory. And then third, to pray for God's kingdom to be established as in the Lord's prayers is implicitly, if not explicitly, to pray for competing kingdoms to be destroyed. God, destroy everything else so that you ultimately are it. As Christians, we should pray that God would destroy our enemies by converting them. But if he so chooses, God may also destroy them by pouring his wrath on them. It's a strange tension that we've got to have. But God's kingdom is so much better than the kingdoms of this world. So we need to guard our hearts against any selfish motives or personal delight in seeing our enemies brought down. And, but we've got to remember that the saints will rejoice when God finally judges the wicked. And you'll see that in, in Revelation chapter 18. And if our hearts are right, we can pray that God can subdue the enemies of the cross either by conversion or by His justice. Our hope is not that those who oppose us are killed, but ultimately that God is glorified. And His ways are higher than our ways, and we need to trust that God will do His work. Second, we also need to... Uh, it's not just an issue of prayer. But there's also, they put their hearts into work. They put their hearts into work. 
And you see that in, in 4 verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Okay, let's, let's put it in the context of the local church. God has given us a call as a particular body of people, of believers, to, to be light in a dark place. To accomplish something. To, to make Jesus Christ known here in Mokina, in Frankfurt, New Lenox, Joliet, Orland Park, Tinley Park, and keep on bumping it out. All, all the way to Nigeria. But He's calling us all to have a mind to work. To do that work. It is not just the work of Paul Vroom. It's not just the work of the elders and for Nathan to be doing. It's not just the work of, of Todd, of Emily, and John Meskus. It's not just the work of uh, Kelly and Amanda who are working diligently in the children's ministry. It is the work we all need to have the mind to do God's work. He calls us all. He has gifted us all to do the work that is set before us. I think of a conversation that is secondhand now from, from Amanda to Todd, now to me, about the children's ministry. We make covenant promises about our children at baptism that we will raise them up together as a family. We will do that hard work together. And then I think back to there was a certain man who was a goldsmith and a perfumer who put their hands to the work on the wall. It was out of their trade. What about the children's ministry? Is God calling you to say, you know what, I'm going to do the work in the children's ministry. It might not be my specialty, my gifting, but you know what, I can hold a kid. And if God calls me, I can change a diaper. I can, I can, I can, I can get here early at 6, 7 o'clock and set up tables and chairs i will put my mind to the work that god has called us to do they put their hearts into the work if you if you're finding yourself just showing up on sunday and not engaging in the work of the church something is lacking and maybe it's a heart for the gospel that's lacking maybe it's a heart for your brothers and sisters in christ that we call our church family missio day If you're not engaged and your heart is not set to the work, I want you to really wrestle with that, struggle with it. And maybe, uh, maybe Nathan and I need to start going down our list and start making phone calls and saying, hey, is your heart into the work of the church? If not, what's going on? Are you in the Word? Are you praying? Are, are things going on financially that, you, that are captivating your mind? Are things going all right in your marriage? Are you being lazy? just apathetic it's part of the the call of an elder and pastor is to discipline with strength and shepherd with tenderness to call you say hey what's going on why not love the Lord your God with all that you have the next thing is that they 
did this. They, they kept their eyes on the enemy in vigilance. They were always watching. Scripture says that the enemy is on the prowl. Just waiting for somebody to devour. Like a, you, you've seen them, like National Geographic. Back in my day, it was Mutual of Omaha, the, the Wild Kingdom. And you see this lion going through the savanna, just creeping, waiting for the zebra, put his head down to the grass, and what does he do? Boom! He's after him. And that zebra, if he was wearing a diaper, had filled it at that moment because he's going, he is after me now. But we as a church are called to do what? To have our eyes always watching the enemy. What is he doing? Oh, do you see what's going on over here? Let's be praying about this. Let's be working on this. He is distracting their marriage. He's distracting their finances. He's distracting their heart. He's distracting their kids. He's distracting their educational process. Let's keep, let's, as a church, we need to focus over here. What about, oh, you see what's going on over here? Their eyes were always fixed on what the enemy was doing. And they were proactive. Did you see how they were proactive? What did they do? They set up guard. There were people constantly on guard. Some of them were carrying it around with them, the sword with them, the spear with them. Some were you know, carrying around the bucket of, of mortar and, some, and at the same time they were carrying around the sword. Others were standing behind the wall just dedicated to doing what? Guarding and keeping watch. There was always somebody who was doing the trumpet call, the clearing call of, hey, something's going on over here. Something's going on. Come on over here. Let's, let's take care of it. There's an attack. There's a skirmish going on over here. It requires people to have a heart that is sensitive and really alive to the things of God and say, all right, we, we need to move over here. We need to pray this way. We need to work this way. But their eyes are watching, always watching. And I'm going to give you kind of this, this cultural thing. Many of us are just absolutely oblivious to the dangers that come from Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion Seeking to devour us. We're not putting on the full armor of God. And here's just a personal thing. Two weeks ago, we were, we were going out to go uh, see our neighbors. My, it was just me and the two kids in the back seat. and We were listening to good old Disney radio. Just gave up my man card right there, but um, <laughs> what's said here stays here, okay? But we were listening to Disney radio, and also my daughter was just singing out the song, and it was just this, you know, kind of getting really excited in the car, and all of a sudden it's talking about this girl who was putting glitter on so that the boys will notice her. She'd wear this so that the boys would notice her, and all of a sudden I'm going, <laughs> My little girl is seven and she is singing about this. Culture has slipped in under my guard and I'm allowing my child to sing about wearing glitter and these kind of clothes and this kind of, I wish I could even hear this, sing the song to you, but it was like, oh my gosh. He got into my kid's head. And, but some of us just think, ah, oh, it's just a dance song. It's purely innocent. Serious? 
It's dangerous. Because my kid is now seeing that it is okay that she wears this and does this to get a boy's love and affection. I turned off the radio and said, Grace, can I tell you something? God created you beautiful. She looked at me like, I know, Dad. (laughs) God made you beautiful the way it is. Did you hear what this song is saying? That you've got to dress a certain way for boys to find your beauty. That's a lie. It's saying that you've got to wear makeup a certain way for people to recognize your beauty. Grace, if that is true, those are the last people you want to be with. There was mention about her wearing a cross. And I'm going, serious? Grace, the best gift that you can ever give anybody is your heart and your love for Jesus Christ. That little girl is just bawling in the back seat. And then you get Bubba goes, what about me, Dad? <laughs> My little boy, you know, four years old. Well, what about me? I said, Bubba, you know what? You are really good at the iPad. You love to play soccer. You love to play hard. You have a great sense of humor. You giggle like no one else that I know. But if people like you just for that, they've missed the best thing. And we talked about the gospel. Our eyes have got to be ever diligent to the subtle ways that Satan gets into our hearts, our minds, our family culture, our church culture. And we set up barriers and say, no, we will not do this. I, as a father, am seriously considering, will my daughter ever be allowed to date, as in an American culture dating? Or will my daughter become a serial monogamous child? who goes through multiple serial monogamous relationships where she is constantly giving her heart away, her purity away, her thoughts away, her focus away to other boys? Or do I say, little girl, follow after me as I follow after Christ. Trust me as your dad who loves you. Trust me. When the right man comes, and we discern if he is a faithful follower, if he's truly regenerate, I will say yes. But I don't want all those potential suitors coming into my home, stealing my daughter and her heart, stealing her purity. Hard decision. I saw many of you go, yeah, whatever. You're going to tell your daughter she can't date? It's a recent cultural phenomenon, dating. So yeah, maybe. Last thing. They had to keep their minds focused on the Lord. Verse 14. Verse 14 again says, uh, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. They were discouraged. And what did he do? He said, focus back on the Lord who is great and awesome. 
focus on him. It's easy when, when opposition comes or discouragement comes and exhaustion comes and mockery comes and sarcasm comes that we just get defeated. But we need to be reminded to go back and get focused because there's no temptation that has overtaken you but is such that is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to handle. But with the temptation, we'll provide a way of escape that you will be able to endure. You're going to be able to endure. So keep your eyes focused on the mission. Keep your eyes focused on, on God. Keep your eyes going. One historian, Will Durant, said this. Rome remained great as long as she had enemies who forced her to unity, vision, and heroism. When she had overcome all enemies, she flourished for a moment and then began to die. Opposition kept Rome strong. If you know Christ and try to accomplish anything for him, if you have a heart for the gospel and what Jesus Christ has done for you and you try to accomplish anything, you will experience opposition, period. Especially, especially if you're in leadership. But we as a church are called to respond as Nehemiah did with prayer. prayer and pray again and keep on praying to keep on with the hard work endure persevere and we're to have vigilance against the enemy with our eyes always watching and looking and keeping our focus on the great and awesome God so for the next three four minutes we're going to do something. Because I think that we need to be a people who are storytelling people. Of telling of God's greatness. Briefly, I want you to share a story out loud of God's great work. So that when you are starting to become discouraged, we can say, hey Wendy, remember that story you told? Remember that great and awesome God. What stories do you have to share? Go. Go.